Last week I spoke about some of the ways that we can get trapped in self-judgment. And I spoke a lot from my own personal experience of having been away and meditating for a month and finding how easy it was to have something that was just a simple experience of, let's say, pain, collect layer after layer of judgments and thoughts until it became real, a real full-fledged bout of suffering. And what I'd like to talk about tonight is what can begin to free us in a very radical way from this habit of judging ourselves. The word Vipassana comes from the Pali language and it means literally to see clearly. We could also use the words to touch fully or to feel fully or to listen completely. It has to do with a full and complete connection with our experience, really contacting life. Now what happens, what most people discover, whether it's here sitting or as we spend more and more time meditating, is that what we begin to see clearly are very deeply ingrained patterns, conditioned habits of pulling away from life. So what we're seeing is not always so pleasant. We see our habits of grasping. We begin to see very clearly how attached we are to our bodies and our achievements and each other, having things the way we want them to be, controlling things. We, we begin to really sense just how pervasive this conditioning is. And what happens is that we start judging the very thing we're seeing. So it's an irony that the more we meditate, it looks like things are getting worse in a way. We're just seeing more. Our challenge is to be able to see what's going on and rather than judging it, make room. See it, recognize it, and then just find a way of making friends with or making peace with that experience. Our freedom from our conditioning really comes in any given moment that we can see it clearly and just stay present not condemn ourselves, not trying to fix things. A very simple, open presence with what is, is very liberating. Again, I very, very frequently in my own way of understanding things, imagine the sense of my being as an ocean and I'm seeing these waves of conditioning and conditioning that actually causes pain, ways that I create suffering in other people, ways that I'm not as honest with myself as I'd like to be, ways that I get addicted to things, and to see these waves of experience. And if in the moment of seeing, I can also remember a sense of wholeness, of being the ocean of experience, in that moment, there's some freedom. And that's the essence of our path. It's this shift in identity from thinking, I am this wave, to I am this ocean, I include these waves, but they do not have to control or dominate my life. There's tremendous freedom in reconnecting with a sense of wholeness. Our challenge is 
that it's almost a reflex when we sniff out something we don't like in ourselves or each other to clamp down in our judgment, to say bad, something's wrong. It's a very, very strongly conditioned response. So in the practice of Vipassana, in the practice of seeing clearly, unless we can find some way to befriend what we see, we just set off a whole kind of string of reactivity. We can't see something clearly if we're judging it. That's what it comes down to. The moment that we start judging, we're interfering with what we're seeing. We're seeing our filter of judging. We're not seeing the thing unto itself. We know this with each other. Each of us knows what it's like when we're with somebody that's close to us, the difference between simply listening and taking in and being with that being in a very clear, clean way and what it's like if we're trying to judge, evaluate, or control, we can't really grasp or grok or perceive who that being is. And we also know what it's like, the beauty of feeling like someone's with us and they're truly listening and experiencing who we are without the filters of judgment. That's a total blessing when that happens, and we all love that. But as soon as there's judgment, we cannot perceive another being's nature. We can't sense who they are. There's a line I just read. It goes, we're born with two ears and one mouth. That should tell us something. (laughs) Can we be twice as receptive as we are having our little inputs? This is true with our inner life, too. In a moment of judging or trying to control what's inside us, we no longer can experience our own nature. What happens is we rarely are intimate with ourselves because for the most part there's this ongoing voice that's evaluating, I'm doing better, I'm doing worse, I did this right, I, you know, we're always measuring. So to be truly present, there needs to be a quality of deep receptivity and being non-judgmental. I read to you from the sixth Zen patriarch who puts it in a very clear and beautiful way. He says, good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, pure awareness, then kindness exists. If we don't experience that in our practice, it may be that the awareness we bring to meditation is colored by judgment. Awareness and judgment are completely different. Judgment is evaluative, critical, condemning, comparing. Awareness is neutral, does not have preferences, likes and dislikes. It simply reflects, and in most of us, it is underused. 
we are more accustomed to judging and evaluating our experience than simply being aware. So when we talk about the practice of mindfulness meditation, of Vipassana, we're really talking, as a friend of mine says, the practice of heartfulness or kindfulness meditation. You can't separate it. There's no way to see clearly and mindfully what's happening in a given moment unless there's a true, kind, and receptive quality of awareness present. So how do we be kind? How do we be kind in the face of such a strong reflex to judge, condemn, push away, make separations? It's the source of our suffering, wouldn't you say? This basic tendency to judge? It's because of this that the Buddha, right from the very beginning, taught metta, our loving-kindness meditation, hand-in-hand with Vipassana. And the more I practice meditation, the more I become convinced that there's no way that we can truly practice Vipassana without a very intentional and deep commitment to the cultivation of metta or loving kindness. Now, some of us do it informally. I mean, we're all doing it. Some of us do it in a, in a more informal way, and some of us are doing it with a formal metta practice. But either way, it's indispensable. We have to cultivate kindness. And it is something we can cultivate. It's our nature and we can encourage it along, which is what I'd like to talk about tonight. Now, the Buddha, when he taught it, started in by saying, as we become more filled with loving kindness, a whole range of benefits or advantages to us become clear. Here's what he listed as 11 of them. You will sleep easily. It's a nice start. You will wake easily. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. The devas, that celestial beings, and animals will love you. The devas will protect you. External dangers will not harm you. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused, and you will be reborn in happy realms. (laughs) Sound good? Are we sold? the Buddha went on to describe the forces of hatred and fear as extremely powerful. But he said, greater yet is the power of love. That there's no force or power that's deeper in our nature and greater in its potential to heal and wake us up than the power of love. Loving-kindness, or metta, allows us to open to what's most difficult. It's really our path to become whole, to open to all parts of our being and all parts of life, because as long as we're resisting some part of what's inside us or outside us, there's a tightness, a contraction, a separation, and no peace. So it's our path to keep opening, to keep including more and more of life. And there are some things that are so difficult that we are so deeply 
programmed to resist that unless there is the real deep quality of love or metta present where you're not soft enough, we're not spacious enough to contain it. The story I'll tell you about that is probably the, one of the most sad ones I know, but just to share it with you, that several years ago, a friend of mine uh, experienced the death of her son. He committed suicide. He was about 16, and it was very sudden and unexpected. In retrospect, they're beginning to piece a lot together. But as you can all imagine, that's just in the category of as painful and awful a circumstance as anyone could have happen in their life. At his funeral, she didn't say a lot, but the one thing she said that was so profoundly moving was that the only thing that allowed her to not go kill herself, that kept, allowed her to connect with any sense of sanity and it being okay to continue living was the enormous amount of love of, of the friends and beings that had gathered around her. And she was able to honor that with such sincerity within a few days of her son's death that even in the face of that devastation, she could feel the power of love. Each one of us here knows about that. It's, it's our deepest intuition that this is what saves us. This is what frees us. Certainly, during the month that I was away, and some of you weren't here last week, but I ran into repeated cycles of difficulty, and a lot of it would get triggered off with physical illness, which would immediately capitulate into a very big self-negation, like, what's wrong with me that I can't get myself healthy, and this is going to last forever, and my life is such and such, you know, just all these big generalizations that made me miserable. And what would happen is, it would go on for a while, this compounded self-judgment, till a light would go off, and I'd realize, I'm really suffering. <laughs> you know, this, is, this isn't just pain, like I'm really suffering. And there's a line that Thich Nhat Hanh has taught that came to mind a number of times for me. Some of you know this, where somebody will be keeping another being company and say to them, darling, I see your suffering. I started saying that to myself. I mean, it felt a little strange to call myself darling. <laughs> but it was actually, it, it tenderized me some. And this kept happening. I'd hit a threshold of judging myself, and all of a sudden I'd go, oh, suffering. And as soon as I could recognize how much I was in pain, I would soften. And then I began doing the practice of metta, which I'll describe more fully offering just caring wishes towards myself, it was through that process and only that process that my body-mind had room enough and space enough to be in an honest, clear way with what was happening. If I hadn't hit threshold and softened with some loving-kindness, I wouldn't have been able to bring mindfulness to what was going on. This is the process that happens for most of us in our lives that we get lost and caught and somehow or other, by some grace, begin to recognize, ah, human that is suffering, and we soften towards ourselves.
Metta is the open-hearted connectedness that we can feel with all of life. It's a natural potential experience in all of us, and we've all touched it. Some of us touch it through being in nature. It just kind of lets go of all the layers of stuff that, that keeps us separate, and then we really feel that sense of unity. Some with certain beings, certain other people kind of wake it up in us, but then it's just there, and there's a sense of connectedness. There are many ways that we kind of refine ourselves back in our own hearts, feeling connected to the life around us. It's part of our nature, but just as much as it's part of our nature, we are programmed to forget and to get disconnected. Albert Einstein called it an optical delusion of our consciousness that we think we're separate. And then we operate that way, and we make meaningful people, a certain circle of people, meaningful enough that we, that we include them in our hearts. But most of the world is considered separate and outside us and not part of our circle of affections. And he said, really, our task is to, to keep on widening our circle of compassion and love until it includes all of life. Albert Einstein. It becomes really interesting to sense who and what we've included and how much we've excluded. How many beings we encounter each day that we just think of as other or not relevant or not like us, not deserving a, a sincere or caring attention. How many parts of ourselves or how many moods or how many experiences that we write off within ourselves as, well, this isn't a very together place to be in within myself, or I don't like this, and, and then we ignore ourselves. We don't pay attention to our fear, or our grief, or our nervousness, or our preoccupation. We disconnect easily. So our path, and the path of metta or loving kindness, is an intentional reconnecting. It's seeing how that's happening, and seeing the pain it causes us, how it makes us small and intentionally reconnecting with the disowned parts of ourselves, with the others that we in some way have not included in our life. Let's do just a little exercise, if you will, just to close your eyes and just take a moment as you close your eyes to connect with a sense of your body and your breath. And bring to mind someone that's close to you, that matters. And we'll begin the first part of this exercise, as as you bring them to mind, go ahead and sense the faults that they have that bother you. Now, don't sense something that's super traumatizing to you. Just something that's medium bothersome. <laughs> Maybe a few things. And as you do, let it be fairly explicit that you see what they're like and remember times 
bring to mind times that they acted out and sense what it was like for you? Or if you weren't involved, just sense it from a distance. But really, allow yourself to honestly experience this person's faults. Feel what it's like in your body as you do so. You might even imagine that you're in the middle of a room and as you sense this person and their faults, sense how far you want them to be from you in the room. Be honest. Be in your body. Feel what it's like to review someone's faults. Take a few deep breaths now, please. And it really does help to breathe long and deep because we're going to switch gears, as you can imagine. And now to begin to reflect on what you most appreciate about this person. To see and feel and sense the qualities of their being. Be it their capacity to love, their love for you, their nobility, in whatever way, their aliveness. And use your senses. See what they're like. Feel the energy of what they're like in the ways that you appreciate. You can go ahead and enjoy it. Feel your body as you do it what it's like to perceive another being in an appreciative way. And again, imagining yourself in a room in the middle and sensing where you naturally would like that person to be. And you can continue at your own time doing this. But for now, come on back again. A few deep breaths and just letting go, being here. We all have habits of how we pay attention. We all have patterns of filtering our experience, what we look for in other people and in ourselves. There are several models of how the mind works. And one model that people believe is that the mind's like a mirror, and what we're experiencing is just a reflection of what's out there. A model that's more congruent with a path of mindfulness is that what's really happening is that our mind is actually the primary element of creating, that whatever we're experiencing out there is we're experiencing our own mind. So if we experience negative stuff about a person, we're experiencing our own filters of negativity. That doesn't mean there's not a role for wise discrimination and knowing how to respond to different situations. But the amount of pain that comes from our habit of judging, from the fear-based ways that we think, that feel like they need to see what's wrong and protect ourselves and so on, make ourselves better, make ourselves worse. The amount of suffering warrants some attention. What's our habit of how we perceive each other? This becomes very obvious um, for me when I look at parenting. 
that, um, and many of you I'm sure can relate to this, that there's so much grasping and fear around having your child become a happy together person that it's very easy to have many filters of are you doing this right, are you doing this wrong, both to do with your behavior and their behavior. It's why parents can't end up teaching their own children things very well. At least I can't. We are very attached to how they are and those filters of attachment make it so we do not necessarily convey a trust in their own nature. This is the most pervasive way that parents instill a sense of distrust in children towards themselves. We're afraid they're not going to turn out right, and they get afraid they're not going to turn out right. And hence, the whole cycle of insecurity goes on and on through the generations. Our minds, the fear in our minds, actually create the very thing we fear. Insecurity, and then suffering. It's worth us watching these conditioned patterns of judgment. And it's worth us beginning to practice looking through different eyes, appreciating each other, being mindful of when we're judging, and practicing loving kindness, metta, which is what I'd like to talk about now, how we actually can cultivate loving kindness. First to say that changing our habits of thinking takes being very intentional. And that metta, first and foremost, the practice of loving kindness, is really the practice of intentionally directing care towards ourselves and the world. In Buddhist psychology, our entire experience is determined by our intention. So if we act in a fear-based way or act out of anger, what we do is we create more anger. If the intention is to hurt and we act out of that intention, we create more hatred. If our intention is to care, even if we're not in touch with caring, if that's our intent, which really is true for most of us, and we can remember that even with a glimmer, we are beginning to seed loving-kindness. That is the power of the practice. Frank Andrews, who wrote The Art and Practice of Loving, says, cause for cultivation of love is aiming to love. The cause for the cultivation of love is aiming to love. Coming to the beloved, which is our life, with an open heart, determined to pay attention and appreciate. Now, in the classical metta meditation, the way we do this, the way we aim to love, is we offer kind thoughts and phrases to ourselves, to each other, and to all beings. And it's a very powerful way to wake up the heart. I'll give you some example of some phrases, and when we do the practice together tonight, I'm going to encourage you to choose the ones that resonate for you. So you might listen carefully to these, just close your eyes and sense which one touches you. And if none of them do, to just sense for yourself what's the wish you'd like to offer yourself that really brings up a sense of tenderness. We all have places of vulnerability within us that respond to care. 
We all know what it's like when we're feeling a certain way and somebody listens or asks us how we're doing or puts their arm around us and how that can even evoke a sense of enormous feelings of being touched. We can touch ourselves with caring phrases. But it's, it's a skill to choose which phrase. So here are some that are very um, used by a lot of people. May I accept myself just as I am? Listen, repeat it to yourself and sense what it's like. May I accept myself just as I am? May I love myself unconditionally? May I feel filled with loving kindness? May I feel held in loving kindness? Held in the heart of the Buddha, in the heart of the world. May I rest in great natural peace. May I be healthy in all ways. May I experience the ease of well-being. May I be safe from inner or outer harm. May I have mental and physical happiness. May my heart and mind be free. These are some. There are many. May I trust myself. May I trust this awakening heart and mind. We can offer wishes about health, happiness, trust, acceptance, love. Typically, we pick four phrases and then just offer those four phrases over and over again. And then it might be the following week or month. It's time to change the phrases. When we offer the phrases to ourselves, and we often start with ourselves because until we've offered loving kindness to ourselves, there's not the flow or the sense of connectedness to offer it anywhere. And once we have, we become connected very easily with all beings. When we offer loving kindness to ourselves, when we offer these phrases, it can be done as if we're offering it to the child, the inner child that's within. We can sense ourselves outside our own beings, offering to some image of ourselves that really needs and deserves attention. To establish this relationship of unconditional care in the offering of these phrases. What we're offering is a sincere wish for welfare and genuine happiness. And eventually it's to all beings without exception. The practice keeps, the circle keeps widening. We go from ourselves to each other, our families, to people that we have hard times with, to all beings. The power of the metta meditation is that even when we have no sense of feeling care, even when we're really disconnected from feelings of warmth, just somewhere in us knowing that we wish we could care (laughs) moves us towards it. That is the power of metta. And if there's anything when you leave here tonight, and and we'll we'll end tonight doing some metta, and then hopefully use this week so that we each can practice some, and then when we gather next week, start exploring what's hard, what's easy, what works, what doesn't work, If there's anything you leave with, to remember that you don't have to be in the mood for metta to practice it. 
In fact, usually when you're not in the mood, it's a great time to do it. Now, there are times that you're so not in the mood that it feels like a violation of where you are, and then it's not the thing to do. Simply mindfulness, okay, so I'm feeling wretched, I'm feeling hateful, I'm feeling, just to name it, notice it, try to just be present, fine. But there are many times that we're disconnected that if we just say, all right, may I be sincere and caring as much as possible, and then just start offering offering them, and after a few minutes of offering them, there's a magical softening and opening that really makes room for more presence. It's quite beautiful. There's sometimes a misunderstanding that when we offer metta to ourselves or to a certain person, that we're really creating kind of a conditional love to s- just for ourselves or that person. And yet one of the things that people find in this practice is that it really doesn't matter where you direct it. It helps to start where it's easiest and most needed, usually ourselves or somebody that's very dear to us, where it kind of flows more, more uh, with, with less effort. But once we tap into the current of offering care, it really brings quite a universal sense of connectedness. Share a story in that regard which is that um, many years ago when I lived in an ashram, uh, a new person joined up and came in and did a very, a very vigorous sadhana or spiritual practice, a lot of meditation, a lot of concentration, a lot of devotional chanting. And within about a month or two, fell in love with one of the women in the ashram and deeply in love and asked, wanted to get married and so on. And they were told just to wait and take their time. But then two months later, he fell in love with another woman and was despairing. And I was, I was a counselor back then, too, and so I was you know, working with him about it. And what he discovered was he was just in love. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he was just very responsive to life. And I feel like if he kind of stuck around in that mode, he would just fall in love with everybody. You know? he matured so that he started realizing that, you know, there needed to be containers and there needed to be commitments and, he, you know, he needed to wait and really see whether there was a match on many levels that aren't always as dramatic as the deep and love levels we like to hang out in. But it was a very profound lesson for him to realize he wasn't in love with some external being as an object but he was really connecting with the love that was very intrinsic to his own heart. He was connecting with the love of life. And this is what happens through the metta practice, that we might use ourself or another person to begin to evoke that sense of warmth and overflowing kind of connectedness. And then it just, as this is what lovers find out. They, they fall in love with each other and then feel like this warm glow about everything. Now, that, if it's immature loverness, then that kind of fades and everything kind of um, contracts again. But as we mature on the path, we become lovers of life. And the metta practice is what seeds and cultivates that in quite a beautiful way. Rumi writes, the real orchards and fruits are within the heart. The reflection of their beauty is falling upon this water and earth. The origins are our own heart. And then as we 
live in this world, we are with each other and that sense of love manifests through contact everywhere. This is Rumi again. This is called A Mouse and a Frog. A mouse and a frog meet every morning on the riverbank. They sit in a nook of the ground and talk. Each morning, the second they see each other, they open easily, telling stories and dreams and secrets, empty of any fear or suspicious holding back. To watch and listen to those two is to understand how, as it's written, sometimes when two beings come together, Christ becomes visible. That's a mouse and a frog, part one. We'll do part two in a few moments. But this is a practice of intimacy. It really is. It's becoming intimate with ourselves, opening to include more and more parts of ourselves in a kind and loving way, and intimate with each other and our animals and our trees and our earth intimate this moment, just this moment with just how it is. So it's a really challenging and beautiful question to sense, am I living in that way? Am I living in a connected way? For most of us, it's quite painful to recognize the degree to which we pull away. It's really painful when we look at the people closest to us and see how we do that. And we all do it. We all pull away. Mostly we do it because we've pulled away from ourselves. We are, have such a deep habit of negating ourselves that we don't even realize it sometime. And the next thing we know, we're feeling isolated, alienated, and lonely. It creeps up on us. Many of us are no longer going around with big, loud voices in our brains saying, you fool, you jerk, you blew it again. You know, it's not always so blatant. It's sometimes very quiet, the ways that we don't like how we are. And yet it builds up, you know. It builds up. And then there's this kind of souring on life and souring on each other. Because we do this, because we subtly or not so subtly push ourselves out of our own hearts, the practice that's intentional of metta is the only way I know to wake up to that habit and re-embrace what has been rejected. For the most part, to practice metta, we start with forgiveness. And this is true 2,500 years ago when I guess they were doing the same thing in in India. They were working with beings that had contracted against themselves. So in the classical practice of metta meditation, it started with forgiveness. There's no way to be mindfully present if we're rejecting ourselves. You can't be present with what you're pushing away. That makes sense. So forgiveness is the practice of letting go of of that pushing away reflex, of re-including what has been pushed away. As I've mentioned many times here, forgiveness of parts of ourselves or of each other is not to say that we condone behaviors that are hurtful. 
We can say absolutely no to this behavior, but I still hold you in my heart. We can say I never want to see you again, but I still hold you in my heart, and that's sometimes necessary. We can say I'll still embrace you as a being, but never again will I allow myself to be violated in such and such way. And I say that to make clear that forgiveness has its own pace, its own speed. It can't be done as a way to, to just smooth over things. And yet in the long run, it's necessary if we don't want to have a splintered heart ourselves, if we don't want to carry that heavy burden of rejecting. Because it is a burden. The value of forgiving ourselves and each other is to lighten and free our own hearts. I always like this uh, from Saturday Night Live, Deep Thoughts. They have this on forgiveness. The first thing was, I learned to forgive myself. Then I told myself, go ahead and do whatever you want. It's okay by me. (laughs) So that's what it's not. (laughs) (laughs) So forgiveness is part of waking up. First, there's this recognition, oh, okay, I've pushed something away in myself or another being. And then there's the willingness to be with. And it takes courage because we wouldn't keep not forgiving. We wouldn't keep pushing away if there weren't something painful there we're trying to avoid. So when we approach forgiveness, when there's really something to forgive, what we're approaching is connecting back with the pain that was caused and a willingness and a courage to be with pain. And yet in the act of being with what hurts, we become bigger. We become able to include versus small, contracted, and pushing away and protecting. Another little exercise for you. Take a moment to close your eyes again. Take a few breaths. And connect with your body, please. Feel sensations in your body. Know that you're here again. If you've been off in thoughts. Feel your heart. Feel whether your heart feels open or closed, tight, easy. I'd like to invite you to review your day today. Not moment by moment, that would take a day. (laughs) But just review it in the sense of to see if you're judging yourself for any misbehavior, if you're judging yourself for any action, lack of action, doing too much, doing too little, not treating someone well, not treating yourself well, for a mood that you don't like that you carried, for certain thoughts. Just sense if you're carrying anything from today where you didn't like how you did something, internally or externally, and that not liking That aversion is still in your body-mind. Sense if the judgment's current. If, as you review the day, you discover spots that are unforgiven, that you haven't fully accepted how you've been, then take these moments to retouch those spots 
with the intent to let go and forgive. You might just simply say to yourself, forgiven, or it's okay. This is a forgiveness scan, just to see if there's holdings that you can free up by simply recognizing, oh, okay, so that was a place I held on to a judgment, forgiven. And the more you can see what's happening and bring sincerity, even intending to forgive, the more freedom is possible. Sometimes when we do that, the holdings are light, and just the recognition really can lighten our load. Sometimes something that's happened today is part of a bigger theme of one of those very deep core areas that we just can't accept about ourselves and our life. I'd like to speak to that for a moment, and you can come back from doing this exercise and continue it on your own when you'd like, if you'd like. For most of us, we have certain edges that we encounter where it just, how we are seems unforgivable. I know for myself that I can forgive a whole lot about my imperfections, but when it comes to thinking that I'm creating suffering for my child, that is very hard to include with an open heart. So that's one of the ones I've had to work on a lot. Um, But it you know, I keep hitting that edge. And I'll talk a little more on how to work with that, but just to, to tell you a story that I thought was touching. This was um, a priest that was working with a woman who was dying from AIDS. And this is the story he told about it. He uh, was summoned and he said he attempted to comfort her, but to no avail. I am lost, she said. I have ruined my life and every life around me. Now I'm going painfully to hell. There's no hope for me. The priest saw a framed picture of a pretty girl on the dresser. Who is this, he asked. The woman brightened. She is my daughter, the one beautiful thing in my life. And would you help her if she was in trouble or made a mistake? Would you forgive her? Would you still love her? Of course I would, cried the woman. I would do anything for her. Why do you ask such questions? Because I want you to know, said the priest, that God has a picture of you on his dresser. Sometimes we need to know, even when we've turned on ourselves, that we're held in love. That's something we can offer each other, and we do offer each other. We get so lost in our self-condemnation that sometimes we need that wake-up of realizing that we're forgiven, that we're held in each other's hearts. So there's that, that we get from community, from friends, from family. And then there's this growing capacity to catch on to the fact that we're causing our own suffering and to re-embrace ourselves, to even the places that are most deeply painful, to accept, begin to include ourselves in our own hearts. So again, just to check in with yourself, just to close your eyes again and to ask that question, which really is 
to sense in your life if there's a story or experience that you repeatedly run into about yourself that's very hard to accept or forgive. And for now, this is just by means of to recognize, to connect with how that is for you. If there's something about you, your behavior, your way, things you've done in your life that are very, very difficult for you to open your heart to yourself about. And for now, to simply sense the intention to forgive, to soften around this as part of your path of freedom, as part of allowing you to be more open-hearted with other beings. Because we do this to benefit the freedom of all beings. Recognizing that edge and sending a message to your own being that intends to forgive. The Dhammapada, ancient Buddhist scriptures, have one line that has been repeated through history again and again that hatred never ceases by hatred alone, but by love alone is healed. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. Punishing ourselves, we sometimes think, will make it so we won't do it again. And that's probably one of the biggest illusions we live in. That our healing comes from kind recognition, from loving ourselves into a space of more wakefulness and freedom. Again, if your eyes are closed and you want to come back and open them, please do. I'd like to end by just talking about what makes it easier to forgive and to include ourselves and each other. One thing that really can open us is to begin to honestly see the suffering that's behind the misbehavior, and I use misbehavior in the broadest sense, that when anyone acts in an unskillful or hurtful way, it's coming from pain inside them. There's a line that I read years ago, and it goes something like, be kind, everybody is facing a hard struggle. Longfellow describes it as the secret suffering of all beings. We all have it. And if we can begin to have the eyes to see the struggle we're all going through, it's much easier to forgive. If, as I described, that happened to me at the retreat, we can really get it that we're suffering. We make room for ourselves more.